Welcome to Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry in crisis. I'm Adriana Jacobs. Each episode of Staying Alive will feature a conversation with a contemporary poet with whom I will discuss the relation between poetry and crisis. From Denver, Colorado to Tel Aviv, Israel, our conversations address modern crises, from the political to the environmental, as well as personal crises, like the death of a sibling or the loss of a home. I'm interested in probing how poets respond to crisis and the forms and language that they use to address it. In these episodes, we also talk about the question of poetry's relevance in times of crisis and what poetry can offer, be it wisdom, critique, or consolation, to our understanding of crisis. My first guest is the U.S. poet Mike Smith, whose most recent collection, Pocket Guide to Another Earth, came out last year with Dos Madres Press. With Brandon Nelson, Mike also curates the Zombie Poetry Project, which they describe as an experiment in machine-assisted composition. From TV shows to video games, zombies circulate widely in contemporary popular culture. But for all of their entertainment value, their appearance also coincides with and responds to times of global conflict and crisis, epidemics, migration, climate change, the global economic crisis, and the fears and anxieties that they provoke. In this episode, which we recorded in a sound studio in Memphis, Mike and I talked about zombie poetry, why Trump's tweets improve through zombification, and Mike's memoir, And There Was Evening and There Was Morning, a series of essays on family, illness, and grief. Mike, I want us to start with the Zombie Poetry Project, and if you can tell us a little bit more about it, how it came together. Sure. The uh, problem with being a writer and having written is that you have to write again. And uh, when I'm trying to recover, whether in a small way from a heavy semester of teaching or in a large way from some kind of personal crisis, I eventually turn to books um, as a way to find my feet. About three years ago in doing this, I wondered what it would be like if I let my own language, which was starting to surface again, infect as a kind of pathogen existing texts. And so the first zombie poems are actually five experiments in allowing my language to eventually take over the language of pre-existing uh, well-known, well-known texts. After that, the next step began in a conversation with my oldest childhood friend who happens to be a software engineer. Uh, and one night late, we started talking about the possibility of creating an algorithm that would syntactically match sections of a long poem, a longish poem, that I would write specifically for the purpose with any user-submitted text. Um, and so from, from that moment on, we had this idea of the Zombie Poetry Project. And, and in fact, the poem I, I, I wrote, Zombie Ride Along, uh, which is 500 lines, the longest, longest poem I, I've, I've written to date, uh, at least published poem, um, uh, is now the source text for this ongoing formal experiment. Uh, the website uh, allows users to submit into a text box any, any English language text. The algorithm then seeks to match up sections of that text with sections of my poem and produce a zombie draft, that is a poem that is a combination of language and syntax from the submitted text and the source text. The, it's, in, it's dynamic and interactive, so the user can then go back um, by um, 
sentence by sentence, independent clause by independent clause, and re-zombify the zombie draft until the user is satisfied. In describing the poem Zombie Right Along, you've said, my only constraints were length and a commitment to imbuing the poem with as many permutations of voice and tense, of perspective and mode as I could. Why was length a particular concern? And why was it necessary that the poem include many permutations? These constraints for the poem arose out of that night's conversation with my collaborator. I just wanted to give him uh, as much material to work with as possible. Uh, so uh, I, I, I usually begin with formal constraints. That's how I write. Um, I like to give I like to have an idea of the shape of things before I actually begin. Uh, and um, this was a way, I, I thought, to at least somewhat govern uh, the kind of poem I might write. I wanted it to be lyric. I wanted it to be segmented. Uh, I wanted it to uh, be a poem of direct address. I thought the, the, the you, the, the reader as, as participant, um, sort of was important because the reader would continue to be a participant uh, if they if they followed the hyperlink at the end of the poem and visited the website and and became a, a a spreader of the contagion themselves. You mentioned in our earlier conversation before we were recording the issue of terminal endings. Could you say more about that? Because I think this connects to the constraints that you applied to your work. Right. One of the obstacles we immediately came up against was the uh, the realization that people would submit texts of all kinds. And that was the idea, from jokes to shopping lists to uh, the first paragraph of War and Peace in translation uh, to, to poems of their own composition. Um, we designed the algorithm to re respond and recognize the uh, syntactical markers of prose, so uh, sentences and clauses rather than lines. But poetry is, of course, composed in lines, which may be and in, indeed are often independent of sentences. Uh, so that uh, produced immediately an, an obstacle we, we felt we had to address, or if, if not overcome. And it's still a work in progress. We would like to uh, make the algorithm a little more flexible, a little more fluid, a little more responsive to the nuances of, of syntax in our language. Um, this was a good place to start. And in fact, many of the sections of the zombie ride-along poem began in prose. In fact, I would say most of the uh, sections began as prose. And, uh, and then I, I found a, a kind of easy variable line that seemed to allow uh, the sentences to play over um, the sections um, as uh, uh, gracefully as possible. But it was a bit of an artificial construction. Uh, I, I, did, I did write it in prose first because I was sensitive to the algorithm and, and what it would be looking for in the submitted text. And when you um, refer to permutations, I was also wondering to what extent this is also related to imagery and having a text that's also rich in things like adjectives and nouns and adverbs, things that can also graft and morph with other texts that employ those elements. Were you, how conscious were you of um, creating a text that was full of rich range of language? 
Of course, that was also very important. You know, one hopes that if you're a poet, that you imbue somehow the language with that richness and resonance. But certainly I was aware that I needed to do that. Uh, and in fact, I became hyper aware of this when uh, after the first draft, my collaborator had me go through um, using some language tools that uh, Stanford group put out and identify uh, the kinds of language that were present in the source text poem. Uh, it, was, it was diagramming to the nth degree, I think. And some things that were not fragments, I deemed fragments, uh, just because I thought that would allow for uh, a, a richer sort of transformation when they uh, were combined, if they were selected. So traditionally, zombie bites or zombie secretions are contagious. They turn those who are infected into zombies. So how did the idea of contagion shape the composition of zombie right along? Because you've talked a bit now how the, the algorithm and both the poem are now in this sort of uh, symbiotic relationship of infection and contagion. But how conscious were you that you were creating a potentially contagious text? I, I think at times I was very conscious uh, of that. In fact, the, uh, the, the poem has a, in its background this idea of contagion. And um, at various points in the poem, which uh, has a kind of a narrative thread, it is, after all, a, a ride-along, so a, a trip down Highway 61, the Mississippi uh, Highway 61. At various points, you're, you're unsure as you read it whether the person that's driving you is, is in fact, a zombie, uh, right? And whether you will become a, a kind of a, a victim. Uh, so, uh, you know, contagion uh, leads one to think of catastrophe, right? Or, and, and crisis. Uh, and uh, the poem certainly begins with uh, catastrophe in mind. But uh, the, um, the, the you addressed in, in the poem uh, seems to be fleeing the catastrophe, which is centered in the urban and civilization, the town, and, and seeking, seeking shelter in, in the countryside. Uh, but the, uh, the, the countryside seems, uh, seems also filled with, filled with the threat of danger and crisis. I want to talk a little more about the figure of the zombie. What is your own personal interest in zombie as a pop cultural phenomenon, um, but also as a potential figure for poetry? I think uh, certainly, certainly zombies are surrounding us uh, these days. And, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, uh, has been written about the phenomenon that in periods of political or social crisis, we get these zombie stories, right? I think the zombie itself, if you uh, pursue the metaphor, uh, this this being caught between uh, life and death, this uh, this being that has uh, animation uh, without without thinking, uh, this being that uh, might be eternal, right? But also has to consume uh, the living to to continue. Uh, I think all those things resonate uh, with me. Also, the fact that zombies can be treated comically as well as tragically, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think, uh, I think that also also resonates. And indeed, there is a kind of a dark comic tone to the poem itself. The zombie as a as a metaphor for where we are or where we might be uh, if if things break badly, I, I think is a rich one. 
Um, and then there's there are different sorts of zombies, right? And different ideas about zombies. Uh, I uh, also happen to have read an article about the zombie ant, I think, uh, soon, uh, soon before I began this project, which also might resonate. And actually, that might be just as much a zombie uh, a part of the poem as the, the, the you know, sort of uh, uh, common notion of the zombie wandering around looking for brains. You allude to the contemporaneity of your interest in zombies, that it has something to do with the present moment. And one of the things that really struck me about some of the zombie poems, zombified poems that I was reading on the site, in the infection site, that there are quite a few poems that zombify President Trump's tweets. A recent one gathers some of his tweets in response to an ex-AIDS tell-all book in a rather creepy but poignant poem. It's short, so I would just want to read it out loud. His hair and beard now had fire for hair. She never warned morning anymore. Day arrived, fire for a job. Orange fire in her eyes. The harvest happened. Okay. Each day in the White House burned her. Leadership was vicious, but not smart. I would rarely see her, but swamped. It's interesting to me because having read some of these tweets, I could feel that language, but then also see that something else is going on. And if anything, the resulting zombified poem um, is a much better crafted literary text than the original source. Um, but your site does... A low does, bar, I might add. A low bar. <laughs> That's true. But on your site, readers are prompted to engage with um, contemporary material. Um, and with a wide range of it, um, you write, we intend the mechanism to be used to interrogate by infiltration and repurposing the canon, political speech, the language of advertising and social media. But that being said, did you anticipate that the infection site would zombify so much political material, especially the already disjointed and decomposed speech of the current U.S. president? And have there been any surprising revelations from those infections? Uh, the answer is no. I did not anticipate uh, Trump being such a such a presence on the site. Uh, I suppose it's because the last president spoke in such long sen sentences um, that uh, uh, he would be difficult to zombify. Uh, Trump being all raging appetite and id uh, is is very easy. Uh, his, his language is is base. It's filled with filled with um, abrupt halts and, and departures. Uh, and so it, that comes across in his tweets as well. Uh, so it gives the user, if they do a Trump tweet, they have lots of, lots of possibilities to zombify, amplify, change the language, and, uh, and create a zombie poem that uh, hopefully, hopefully just calls into question um, his use of language and, uh, and, and, and maybe even gets the user to start thinking about what, what, what language is for, ultimately. So I was going to ask you, if you don't mind, reading the first section of Zombie Right Along. Sure, I'm happy to. Another town, another attack. Shots, then a show of conflagration. Blood rushes from our limbs, grooves the old channels, pools our hearts and minds. We bring to our bright screens our heat and our tears proclaiming as one the suddenness of our pain, pleading to let some good be born of this. By my book, this one quickly shares, which alone might console and explain. The rest of us decide, without conviction, not to chirp a word. Is this innocence, surviving at the cost of mind? 
Is the country still better where blackbirds shawl the treetops, mimic the huffing wind? At night, the scent of skunk slices clean through the walls to where dreams spool and roll in bellies that growl and burst. So tell us a bit about this section and how it came together. This section uh, has as its origin a, a very sad episode in my life. Uh, in the fall of 2015, at the university uh, where I teach, uh, a friend of mine w was killed in his office by, by a colleague. Uh, this got some national news, and the entire school was locked down. I happened to be next door in the building next door, uh, and so uh, uh, was present for the shooting, but uh, I didn't discover that my friend had been killed until until hours, hours later. Uh, but of course, these shootings have become commonplace, and in fact, uh, there seems to be no, no end or curtailing in sight. So it felt like this was the right kind of catastrophe to begin the poem, a kind of an occasion for this journey, this zombie ride along. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of taking this very personal and also very traumatic, painful material and working it into a poem? It, it takes me a while. Uh, and uh, I found that I cannot respond in poetry immediately uh, or sometimes even consciously to the traumatic events of my life uh, they they seem to they seem to enter into it uh, um, uh, un, unbeckoned the way ghosts appear i think and so the undead can become a, a a metaphor for how how we deal with grief how grief is present in our lives uh, at expected times but also unexpected times and so you know i i uh, i i find it hard to answer answer that question in any kind of uh, systematic way. Uh, for a long time, I rejected poetry as a, a possible uh, vehicle for communicating grief. Um, in in a, a memoir I wrote, I, I said that, that, that poetry uh, was no use to me in the experience of grief. In fact, uh, one, might, one might define poetry of crisis, uh, poetry of grief, as catastrophe recollected in tranquility, um, uh, with apologies to Wordsworth. Uh, but uh, I found in the in the moment that that poetry uh, is not a viable a viable vehicle for my grief. It's only it's only after the fact uh, as as I attempt to find find some meaning in in what I've experienced. Poetry is always always about finding meaning somewhere, right? Uh, even even zombie poetry, we're trying to find meaning in some of those Trump tweets. And if you have to zombify them to find it, uh, well. At least you found it. And as the opening section of a very, of a much longer poem, um, is it, do you see it as giving, sort of pointing the reader in a certain direction? Or is this just sort of the place where you want it to start, but maybe isn't necessarily the starting point of the poem? I, I think it, it, it does function as a starting point because after catastrophe, we, we all feel like zombies a bit if we survived it, right? We, we feel we can't make sense of things. The world, uh, we can't orient ourselves to the world. We're, we're driven by, by hunger, right? Uh, physical needs, but also a hunger to understand uh, and to find, to find the why, uh, the cause of, of, the, of the trauma, of the, of the, of the crisis. And, and so this, for me, was a departure point, right? It was the big bang that launches the poem, the, you know, the, uh, 
the unimaginable catastrophe that happens and what happens next. You, you feel like you're going through life um, as if you might be a zombie, right? Uh, somewhat zombified. What are the implications of setting that forward as a form of contagion of this now being a part of other text or other people's poems? Isn't that how violence works? These shootings, doesn't one lead to, to another? Don't they spread exponentially? Or at least it seems to me that catastrophe can do that too. But there's a communal element to this. We're all in crisis. We're all in catastrophe, right? So uh, I don't want to be too sentimental here, but maybe spreading this response to trauma and grief is a healthy thing. It connects us. I'd like to go back to your comment about um, the limits of poetry in a time of crisis and the limits for you um, in a time of crisis. Could you say more about that, um, how that's developed for you as a writer and as a poet? Yes, I, it was surprising to me that poetry was of no use when I went through, uh, for me, what was the greatest crisis of my life, uh, the, the loss of my, my first wife, Emily. Uh, and, um, you know, it was a surprise because the anecdotes surround us, right? The history is filled with um, stories of, of people surviving great trauma, uh, great catastrophe, of being in crisis and being saved by a scrap of verse that they remembered or imagined and, uh, and, and preserved and, uh, by saying it to themselves over and over again, right? There, there's innumerable examples of this. Um, but for me, and I think it might be because of the nature of uh, the crisis uh, that I experienced, uh, it wasn't so. Um, we think of crisis as catastrophe, but one of the things that our, our modern privilege has done, I think, is it's expanded the, the lifespan of crisis. And so uh, when you're dealing with a long illness, um, the, the onset of it and the diagnosis may be sudden, the resolution, the illness taking its inevitable toll can be drawn out and quite drawn out. And uh, I, f I found that uh, in that predicament, in that experience of witnessing this, I, I couldn't write and I didn't want to read poetry. Uh, something, uh, I uh, dealt with this in my memoir, and, and if it's okay, I thought I, I could read that, that paragraph because it, it probably gets at what I'm getting at uh, better than I, I could now. The business of grief is pure prose. Give this poor subject a verb, keep it busy, or get it going again so it might progress along its sentence. Poetry was lost to me, its concentration, its formalities rebuffed and appalled. I wanted straight report, and people obliged me. In the first year after Emily's death, I received dozens of books on grief and mourning. I couldn't read them all, but kept them anyway. Even now, I'll come upon one while scanning a shelf, and my mind will snap back to the time I received it. It's time travel of a sort. For an instant, I'm completely there, returning to the smells, discomforts, and the old tugging hollowness in my belly of those moments. This gravity of grief still pulls at me, as if I might swallow myself. So while these prose texts did transport me back to the moment of trauma and um, and crisis in my life, they didn't transport me as completely as poetry might have. I think maybe I, uh, uh, poetry 
as Wallace Stevens says, uh, is an interdependence of the imagination and reality as equals. And I was afraid that with poetry, I might not be sure where I was, uh, that it might transport me too completely back to that time. And uh, prose did not do this. I think it does have something to do with the mechanics. I think it, it does have something to do with conceiving of language in terms of sentences or of lines. Um, poetry economizes uh, often, and I, I, I think part of that economy allows us, when it works, to be transported completely and for imagination and reality to be equals in a way that, that for me at that moment, prose, prose didn't. I still had a, a, a grounding. I still knew where I was. I still knew that lay in an earlier um, part of my life. I want to talk a bit about the poem as a form of address, as a correspondence with the past and with the dead. And I see this relation running through your work, but it's very explicit in a section um, titled, There's Even a Town Called Hell. This is from uh, Pocket Guide to Another Earth, your most recent collection, which carries the subtitle, 13 Postcards. And there we find this wonderful poem titled, West Virginia, where the speaker is, and I quote, sending you this postcard before they shut the office for good. And at the end of the poem, the speaker notices that the return address is already smeared. Poems like this one acknowledge the failure that underlies this correspondence, and nevertheless, the poems are being written. So what motivates this correspondence for you between the past and the present, between the living and the dead? And which living and absent readers do you hope these poems reach? I think our undead can become a natural metaphor for the grief state. Uh, they can be seen as an expression of uh, communal anxiety. Um, uh, conversely, they can also be expressions of, of our stupidity or ridiculousness. Um, take the zombie, which is more terrifying, non-existence or living forever, eternity. Um, I mentioned before that the zombie was an interesting combination of these of characteristics of the, of the living person and, and the dead soul. Uh, for me, the zombie uh, might represent a kind of counterpoint to Keats's negative capability, right? The idea of holding these two ideas in, in your head. Um, and the experience of crisis uh, might be an experience in which you're held suspended by two potentialities. At least that was my experience in the crisis of illness, right? The two potentialities, wellness and, and death, vacillating between them as if caught by competing gravities. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll again turn to the memoir to, to partially address this question. This is a, um, a, a paragraph uh, that I, I wrote as I tried to make sense of, of my grief and why it wasn't, why it still seemed a crisis, why it wasn't wasn't fading or uh, moving along those seven stages that we're supposed to we're supposed to experience. Perhaps as grief has no depth or breadth and seems limitless, we ought to approach mourning, our ritual reaction to grief, without a destination in mind, without wanting it to get better, without wanting to move beyond it. We may as well ask to move beyond ourselves. Perhaps the desire to move beyond mourning is just the death wish itself disguised the wish to journey to the beloved, not bring her back. And so that, that really, I thought about that idea, is what am I doing here by remaining in crisis? Am, am, am I wanting to be like Orpheus, right? Descending and bring, is that what I do when I, 
when I um, uh, address Emily in my work? Uh, or do I actually want to journey there? Right. And I think that's also at the heart of the zombie ride along poem. And the direct address is, is to me. I'm, I'm asking myself. I'm, 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 you know, uh, interrogating my own motives for, uh, my seemingly, uh, continued participation in this grief process. It's hard not to read your new book pocket guide to another earth in this particular political climate and feel that the expression another earth touches on a feeling that our current political moment induces the feeling that we are living on a different planet in some alternate reality. Certainly the title does suggest that and every news break that occurs seems to um, suggest that we we may very well have been living a different reality had things uh, just been tweaked just a bit or had uh, uh, influences not been what they were. Um, for me, the tether to the ongoing uh, present moment is is the website. Uh, there, the the text, which is established in the book, uh, remains dynamic and changeable. And every new text that's submitted, uh, every new text that becomes zombified, uh, kind of kind of extends the anchor uh, or, or the line that connects the book to the present moment. But certainly, uh, s certainly the the uh, present political landscape in our country. Uh, we have to respond somehow, we, uh, uh, and not not responding it doesn't seem to be an option. And so I'm, I'm gratified if, if if readers see a response to our climate uh, in in the book. Um, certainly, it feels like a zombie life sometimes. Thank you so much for being my first guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. This episode features poems that appear in Mike Smith's poetry collection, Pocket Guide to Another Earth published in 2018 by Dos Madres Press, as well as an excerpt from his memoir, And There Was Evening and There Was Morning, also published in 2018 by Why There Are Words Press. Next time, we'll be talking to British poet Sasha Dugdale about ghosts. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by the Zombie Dandies. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund, for more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show. Mm -hmm.